Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Welcome to the class on Romans, and today we'll look briefly at chapter 3, just covering some of the key problems. But chapter 3 is mainly dealing then with the pervasiveness of sin, all are sinful, and the depth of the sin problem, and I think it's a description of the nature of sin, that it's connected to the organs of speech, it's depicted in great detail as a lie. But of course, part of the issue is in chapter 3, verse 22, is how we read the righteousness of God. Is it a righteousness from God? And also with the faith in Jesus, is it pistis Yesu? Is it faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it, in fact, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ? These two readings then arise in the modern period with the new perspective on Paul. It will make for two very different understandings, not to say that they couldn't in some way be harmonized. If we begin then with the classical, and by classical going back to Luther, the idea that this righteousness from God is through faith in Christ. Christ is the object for all those who believed. And the idea here of the righteousness is it's imputed. It's it's from God imputed in into man. And so as we go through, if you look at the RSV, for example, they're going to be translating the word righteousness. And though it's the same word in the Greek, they're going to translate it as justification. They're needing to do that because of the two very different senses. Then with the new perspective on Paul, the idea is that the righteousness of God, it's God's righteousness, certainly that is manifest. That's what it's being talked about in in and through Christ. But it's manifest through the faithfulness, is the reading, rather than faith in. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. And so this would be the new perspective. In fact, the guy, though, who coins the word new perspective doesn't translate it this way. And so here, the righteousness of God in 322 and 325 is going to have the same sense. It's God's own righteousness, which has been shown in Christ. And the way that it's been shown is through Christ's faithful obedience. And of course, once you set this up, what salvation consists of is participation. And maybe that would be a way of characterizing the two, that in one sense, we're talking throughout about a a Hebraic understanding that is familial, having to do with the family covenant relationship. And in another understanding, maybe Luther's understanding, a Greek idea of the idea of living up to the law in some way. And so the righteousness of God, you could have both of these the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for those who believe, kind of a hybrid. This is what you get in the ESV. It's still God's righteousness, but the way you get it is through Christ as an object. And so we have belief in rather than the belief of Christ. Now, that you don't need to pit those against one another, but they do have a very different understanding. And as Dunn and others have pointed out, righteousness, of course, is the key here. It's the theme of the letter. The idea, the new perspective, it is a relational righteousness that, it, that the participation in the faith of Christ is a participation in who God is. And this is over and against the idea of some standard against which the individual is measured, as in a Greek understanding. What 
we might say about the righteousness is that righteousness or justification comes in three parts. There's future justification at the last judgment. There's past justification in Christ, that this is what is being described, but then there is the present justification, which is what is being talked about here, that the participation, I believe, is is key in Christ. Think here of covenant faithfulness, that what is being fulfilled is the covenant promises given to Abraham. That's where we're going to go immediately in chapter 4. Through Christ, here is the faithful one, and those found in Christ have been faithful to to the covenant. This then is carried out through Jesus' faithfulness in death, in resurrection, a kind of vindication of his being made just or righteous. And of course, the resurrection of all believers in the future will be their having received the fullness of that justice or that righteousness. But in baptism, there is the sense that that is in a present tense already received. And Paul will deal with that at some length in chapter 6. So as we said, this is the same thing I've said before. If we place chapter 3 from beginning in chapter 118 about the depth of the sin problem, And then once we understand the depth of the sin problem that God needs to reveal his saving righteousness, because we are held captive, we are all under sin. And we might say that sin, in a sense, it's not just this, but of course part of what it is is that it's unfaithful. It's an incapacity for faithfulness. As we read through this chapter, we'll see that it is an alienation that is taken up through the parts of speech or through the lips, the tongue, the parts of the body that go into mayhem speech, that they deal in death. And of course, the point that he's already done in chapter one, that all are included in this. And we might think of one as a recounting of the history of all people, not just the Jews, as a reference back to the early chapters of Genesis. And I think here too, these quotes, this series of quotations, sometimes refers to Jewish people, it refers to Gentiles, or it could refer to both in some instances. But the point is, at this time, it doesn't matter who it's referring to, that they refer to all uh, who are unrighteous. That's everybody. And the problem with the unrighteousness, as seen in the series of quotes, has to do with the organs of speech, that people have taken up a lie, and this lie is deadly to them, and it's deadly to others. It functions as a a grave, you know, a sarcophagus. It entraps, it empoisons, and it, it leads to bloodshed. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Alienation, then, is taken up through the emptiness of this speech that deals in death, that their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. Paul is in one in this section referring to the psalm, which the contrast, and this is here in throughout chapter 3, the contrast is between a lie and the truth, the truth over against the lie. In, in psalms, it's the idea of two different ways of language functioning. In one, there is God's presence, that God is there in the speech, but in a lie, the lie of sin, that God is absent, and of course, where God is absent, there is death. And so certainly, the Jews have an advantage. They've been entrusted with the oracles of God. But what 
this teaches then what is the advantage? Well, through this, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There is an understanding of human failure. And so this is not a point of bragging that we have the law, but a point of silent humility. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Every mouth may be closed. All the world may become accountable to God. And so in a sense, you know, I don't think we should single out, you know, the law here, N.T. Wright wants to specify that it may be the Jewish law, but in a sense, the prohibition in Genesis, it's a precursor to the law itself. So it may be that Paul, and it seems in this passage, he's clearly talking about all people, all have fallen short of God, all are in need of redemption from the lie. This lie is not just infecting some people. We might say that chapter 3, chapter 7 are the focus. He's In chapter 1, of course, we might say that idolatrous religion is the kind of, a kind of reification of the lie, and I do this elsewhere. You can look at the scene of idolatry and understand exactly what's happening. The word for idol is selim or image, the likeness of man, is in the idolatrous scene. We see, well, there's the idol that is an object, and then there are the worshipers of the idol, so that there is portrayed in idolatry the alienation that Paul is talking about. So this has the spiraling effect, inclusive of sexuality, murder, the entire course of unethical behavior. But the point is that all of this is based upon exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That is, you believe in the lie, and this is the outcome of this belief. I believe that he's returning, and Jesus does this, Paul does this, when they describe sin, that they're always returning to the early chapters of Genesis, specifically Genesis 3. This is not just about some people, this is about all people. And so the Jew is also counted uh, with Adam, and that's his argument. He's building up that argument that he's going to make in chapter 5. It's not only with pagans or those Jews who collude with the pagan, but the problem is universal. It's deeper even than the Jews imagined. But through the law, then, Paul is arguing, here is the universality of the problem, and this is what you should have understood through the oracles of God. And so deception is inherent, both in the you know, in his description. He's going to use a passage from Isaiah, a, a messianic passage, but it's a messianic passage that before it, it describes very similar language that we've entered into a covenant with death, a belief in a lie. And if you go back, it's the, the same thing will unfold, that just as in Genesis 3, so in Isaiah 28, that shame is part of what it means to believe in this lie. And shame then is in the wisdom literature and the Psalms is especially it will be seen as ending in or its finality is in the shame of the grave. This is thematic. It's a theme that Paul is very much aware of and that in appealing to the series of scriptures, he's appealing to this theme that ironically in a great deal of Protestant understanding. We, in what we do with sin, trivializing sin, we don't follow out the context. We can't see that context. And so what we get is Augustine or Calvin, which Augustine, of course, is a failure of understanding in which sin is, I think, trivialized. It's made organic. It's made mysterious. Salvation is likewise made mysterious. And what we're seeing here is, well, no, sin is an interpretive structure. It's a it's a use of language. It's a context. It invades everything outside of Christ.
So the point here in the new perspective is that Paul is not saying that salvation, the law, you know, through works righteousness. It has always been through grace, but the law marked this grace in a covenant relationship with God. So the way that E.B. Sanders calls, he calls this covenantal gnomism, that is that the law marked the covenant. And, but the danger was not that the Jews, as Luther portrays it, would believe in works righteousness, but that they would imagine righteousness is to be found in their markers, their nationalistic markers, circumcision, the food laws, Sabbath laws, not necessarily even connected with their ethics. The idea of his reckoning, his making righteous, are part of his initiative. He's called Israel. He's going to fulfill it through Christ. It is all about the fulfillment of this covenant relationship that the law indicated, pointed to, but was not in any sense the, to have ever itself served in place of the promise given to Abraham or the faith. In other words, the faith of Abraham, and Paul will come to this in the next chapter, that the faith and the righteousness precede the law. The law is simply a marker. And so Paul's con contrasting works of the law and think here not ethical righteousness or works righteousness, but the markers of Judaism with the marker of law and the marker of faith is the difference between the two covenants. In the first instance, faithfulness is marked with the distinctive markers of circumcision, food laws, all that it means to be a, a Jew, whereas in the second instance, justification by faith, is opens it up. It's not restricted to simply Jews. So the problem is universal. And Paul is here arguing that the answer is likewise universal. God is faithful to his covenant. That's the important thing. But the point is not just a covenant with Israel, but that the covenant originally to Abraham was universal. It's like your descendants will be numbered with the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea with all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. This is, this is a kind of add-on. We could do a whole thing on the difference between language in a fallen understanding. It's there in Aristotle, who talks about spoken words or symbols. You know, it's there in Freud. It's there in Derrida. This is the recognition. It's, it's a recognition that you have in someone like Wittgenstein. That is, there's a use of language that if you trace it out philosophically, psychologically, that in fact does portray what Paul is saying, that the words are simply symbols or signs, and they do not deal with the signified, the thing itself. And so this creates a gap in the speaker that this is illustrated then. In idolatry, there's an, a gap between the idolater, what's often called an adulterer, and the object of the idol. And that gap then in chapter 3 and chapter 7 is portrayed as if it exists that is, that the ego, the I, becomes the image that is the object. And so the gap is between a speaker, the, the I, and his words or himself. And there is then a desire, and we might say this desire is ultimately a, a desire for self, a desire to obtain the object, which is the idol. This may give the appearance of a dualism, but it's not an actual dualism. It, it is a false understanding, but that dualism, if you read Aristotle, and you're even there in uh, Augustine sometimes in his picture of language, that language, there's private language, public language, Augustine's better than that. But there is still this idea of some cap. 
that's a very quick introduction to chapter three. I hope that uh, that brief introduction is helpful. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.